We are in the midst of a psychosis of culture in which insane things are being done under the rubric of their old names. It isn't proper healthcare, it isn't proper law, and it isn't proper politics. It's psychotic. My name is Barry Bussey, and with me today I have Professor Dr. Ian Benson, who's a professor of law down at uh, University of Notre Dame. And Ian and I go back many, many years. And Ian, what a pleasure it is to have you and to just be able to chat again. First of all, uh, what is uh, freedom like down in Australia these days? It's under threat. It's submerged in many ways. It's lacking a proper legal framework for its assertion, not because freedom isn't a fundamental right or prior to law, but because positivism, which dominates Australian law, that's the separation of law and morals, Mm -hmm. has created a legal environment here in the judiciary and in the bar and amongst lawyers generally that makes them very ill-educated and ill-equipped to deal with the real questions of the day. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. The cases that have come to court in New South Wales, which is a a state of Australia, equivalent to a Canadian province or an American state in many respects. Uh, There's a Commonwealth government or a federal government, as you'd call it in Canada or or the US, Australia being a a federal state. the Commonwealth has prior, prior authority over matters, and when it exercises its jurisdiction, it, dom, it, it basically has that principle of paramountcy. So anything that's done by the Commonwealth or the federal government takes priority over the states. But the states and the Commonwealth have not enacted full protections for human rights. There's no Bill of Rights entrenched in Australia. Uh, which is in some ways a good thing because we've seen how the Bill of Rights uh, in the Canadian Charter or the American Constitution has been a kind of tool for contemporary judges who exercise a certain approach to law to basically do social policy from the bench. While you don't have to have a Bill of Rights to protect rights, you need an act. And there's no Human Rights Act in New South Wales. There's, it's unbelievable. There's, there's a discrimination uh, some discrimination protection, but it doesn't cover conscience and religion. Mm. So, so contemporary people in Australia, particularly in this state, New South Wales, and in some of the other states, they don't have the same kind of legal remedies that you'd see in other countries. Add to that lack of legal framework, this positive domination of legal positivism, the separation of law and morality, which dominates the judicial thinking here, And when you go to court in a case like uh, we've seen recently here in cases involving an ambulance driver or other citizens who have been ordered to have mandatory vaccinations and don't want to take them, all the the barristers argue about and all the judges look for is a ministerial power. And once they find the ministerial power under the emergency powers, this, this being a health emergency, that's the end of it for them. They say, right. The minister just has to act reasonably. Who are we to second guess the minister's determination? And there's no rights, no freedoms. They're just gone. Now, why has that, that, why has that happened? Because they don't understand that there are certain freedoms 
that have always been understood in the common law tradition, which is Australia's part of, um, always been understood to be prior to law and its necessary framework. That knowledge, that concept of fundamentality, call it that, or natural law thinking, doesn't exist down here. It's gone. I find that very hard to understand in the sense that Australia obviously comes out of the British tradition. And certainly in British law, we've got uh, those kinds of notions. I, In fact, this organization um, that I'm now heading, uh, we call it First Freedoms, coming out of uh, Justice Rand's decision and some more, uh, where basically he says there's, you know, uh, original freedoms, three original freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and the inviolability of the person. And and it's on that basis, he says, that the community is built, uh, that we have, you know, basically civic society. So it seems rather strange that Australia doesn't have that kind of background to be able to... Uh, deal with even this crisis they've under the section 116 of the constitution of australia there's the uh, provision that reads very much like the american establishment and free exercise clause but that applies in a very general sense to federal enactments it hasn't been seen to convey a robust freestanding right to conscience and religion such as you see in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, to which Australia is a signatory. So those night, great, great um, universal covenants, the United, the, those international covenants, have yet to be, in the language of international law, domesticated. And unless they're brought into domestic law, they're not yet effective. So in a sense, Australia has yet to live up to its obligations, going back over 50 years, to enact provisions like Article 18 of the International Covenant, which protects thought, belief, and religion, amongst other things. But even had it got those kind of things, um, expressed protection for religion and conscience, which people, various government um, commissions and so on have over the years recommended that it bring in, there's, they're subject to an exemption for, as you know, good order, health, morals, etc. Article 18 of the International Covenant, subsection 3, provides exemptions to a state, uh, it's known as the state of exception for mm -hmm. emergency powers. But the problem with that is, you can't just, as a government, assert an emergency and then do whatever you want. There has to be some kind of legal rigor brought to it. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that contemporary governments seem very weak in creating a legislative framework that actually protects rights in the face of emergency declarations. The Canadian Charter, as you know, in Section 1, creates a proportionality approach that right. says you can interfere with the rights as long as it comports with minimal impairment, proportionality, and so on. But is there a searching, is there a real onus on governments to prove to the civil standard that on a balance of probabilities, the things they're claiming are emergencies. Mm -hmm. Because as there's been two narratives on the, since the beginning of this particular COVID debate, if we want to talk about that for a minute. And these two narratives are absolutely irreconcilable, and they can't both be true. And in one, COVID-19 is this very deadly, extremely dangerous 
thing that requires us all to lock down and stay home. Two weeks to flatten the curve becomes two years. And as we've seen in Australia, a great deal of confusion by health authorities as to what the nature of the, how serious a threat is this thing. Some doctors saying lockdowns are worse than the thing that they're proposing to to cure. Mm -hmm. So the lockdowns are causing more social dislocation, more anxiety, more health bad consequences from failure to have proper surgeries, cancer diagnosis, et cetera. Right. Terrible psychological outcomes for children. Mm. These kind of things seem to not be properly weighed by some of the health approaches. And you've got contrary physicians and physicians groups in very large numbers, including leading physicians around the world, who simply say that this whole approach that seems to be the main approach is is wrong footed and based on on uh, sometimes absurd modeling or modeling for hire they they did what the politicians wanted modeled for some reason and there's no real threat of the sort that we're being told on mainstream media well you've got a split narrative yeah and and in one side the dissenters call them that the dissent the ones who dissent from the main narrative there seems to be an associational capture so whether it's law societies, ambulance attendance societies, or medical associations, mm-hmm. they've been clamping down on the dissenting narratives. So even the associations as a microcosm of the state are not allowing freedom. You asked about freedom at the beginning. Right. They're not allowing free and open debate on even things like whether case numbers are relevant to our social panic. Most people who get COVID recover from it. The ones who don't tend to be aged or have comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And yet there's, they've created a social panic to such an extent now that pe- parents are wanting their children, uh, it, given this, these jobs, which are not properly speaking vaccinations, because vaccination, the old definition was that it conveyed immunity. Right. And these things no longer are said to convey immunity at all. Mm-hmm. So all they, all they do now is lessen symptoms. Well, that's not a vaccine, right? And, and the fact that you're you're having to have a constant um, um, upgrading, as it were, of the vaccine is something like you know we're now into number three right now here in Canada, and in Israel they're to number four, and you know how long is this going to continue so that uh, you know the effectiveness, so called, is uh, is not uh, being able to transfer? I don't know. Or, the, the mock-up of a Pfizer um, loyalty card that gives you a toaster after 10 boosters. <laughs> but that, that was quite an amusing meme and, and not so far off the, off the truth, actually. Here in Canada, of course, we have human rights legislation. We have the Charter of Rights. My sense is within the courts uh, here, we haven't yet to have a victory uh, with respect to the various uh, litigation that's going on. Um, and it seems that even here, the judiciary is very reticent to uh, protect uh, people of conscience, for example, or those who have a religious exemption claim. In fact, what I've found or what I've observed, I should say, is that with universities, for example, I've had a number of university students talk to me. And they're telling me that, okay, the university has a religious exemption form and so forth, but they do not know of anyone who's received an exemption. So it's kind of like we will 
the institutions are creating this uh, this nice window dressing that they're you know here's an opportunity for you to have a uh, um, an exemption, uh, but then at the end of the day they don't grant exemptions. And not only that, the the, the other thing that I'm finding is that um, the mindset is is that if your religious community is uh, supporting uh, the vaccine so that, for example, if your church doesn't have any particular uh, religious teaching on it and it's just you as the individual, um, then they're denying the uh, individual, the student, the worker, so forth, saying that, um, I'm sorry, but your church is actually supporting uh, the vac vaccination requirement and uh, we're not going to uh, honor your your conscience, which is a total like throwing out the law with respect to freedom of conscience and which we um, uh, would understand those of us who, who have studied law recognize that this is a pre-existing right long before the Canadian government was even uh, a thing um, or the Australian government was a thing that in liberal democracies, in Western democracies, we've always understood, or at least I <laughs> when I went to law school, I understood uh, that this existed uh, prior to the state. And yet and yet there's no uh, pickup on it. The judiciary is not picking up on it. The um, the legal profession is not uh, speaking out on it. Not even the civil liberties uh, groups are speaking up on this. It's like yeah. it's like everyone's gone for the exits. Like, where are they? Yeah, it is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. You know, I was involved in civil liberties in Canada for many decades as counsel arguing cases and on the board of the BC Civil Liberties Association. And I've worked with the Canadian Civil Liberties at, from time to time. And they've just been virtually quiescent. They haven't said anything. They've taken no public positions. Even my friends who had leadership positions seem to have gone quiet on this. Politically, I think some of the the reason for this is that um, the left, call it that, I don't like left-right articulation. I never liked it very much, but I really don't like it now because it seems to me that the right wing, if we look at business as right, um, mm. big tech as right, big tech is now employing the policies and principles of the Chinese Communist Party mm. in terms of surveillance and deplatforming and censorship and all of this. So when you've got Silicon Valley, big tech, um, doing the same kind of public bullying that you get under a communist regime, what's happened to our left-right dichotomy? It's just mm -hmm. become very confused. And I don't think it helps us to use left-right language for that reason. So I, the language I'm preferring is whether or not one is a statist or a globalist, or whether one is an associationalist and a subsidiary, subsidiarity supporter. Now, of course, that, were, that language is not in common parlance, particularly right. outside of Catholic social thought, where subsidiarity, which actually has a noble Protestant tradition out of the Dutch philosophers, Kuyper and Doyavert and so on, where they talked about sphere sovereignty. The idea there is that things in a society should be ordered from the local upwards, mm. not from the top down. And, and this, this concept of local organizing and local laws, local differences is extremely important to liberty. Mm -hmm. Now, the civil libertarians 
insofar as they were lefties, liked the state. So they liked the move of all this power to the state under these emergency health edicts. And they like it even further to the global level because they're quite globalist in orientation. Justin Trudeau is nothing if not a globalist. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. The Great Reset. He's, he's the, all of the Carl Schwabites, the, the Great Reset people, the mm -hmm. World Economic Forum people, the WHO supporters. Um, they're globalists. They believe the world is best managed from the top down. And, you know, so bad, so sad. Somebody has to do it, and it's us, the very rich oligarchs who run everything, pull all the levers. They view the world that way. Well, of course, freedom in the future will depend upon breaking that, yeah. refusing to go along with it, and ultimately revolting against it. Only a, a, a proper conception of revolution can save human freedom. Um, and that means that sooner rather than later, citizens simply have to stop complying with unjust laws. You know, St. Augustine famously said, lex in justa non est lex. An unjust law is no law. The other day I was um, having lunch with some theologians, and they were asked a question by a student who was present, whether it was legitimate to stop using QR codes or to use a fake QR code. You know, these things where you have to show your ID, right. monitored state. And the theologians were unanimous that it was legitimate to use fake ones because the law itself was unjust and dangerous. Mm. In other words, sub subjecting the self to the all-seeing eye of the state when there's no longer a real urgency for it, or if there ever was, but there isn't now. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, our case numbers are low and cases never equated with deaths anyway. They, these, these national broadcasters, ABC in Australia, CBC in Canada, BBC in Britain, SABC in South Africa, from the very beginning of this um, pandemic, which is what I prefer to call it, they highlighted cases, cases, cases. They never talked about deaths. They never talked about um, the seriousness of these cases. They made everybody afraid of case numbers. And on the basis of that created panic, they got the cultural conditions for the eventual health measures that were implemented. This was manipulation of the media and of the political order who could use that panic to secure their own political advantage. So you, what you've seen is a cynical use of a created panic by politics and then medicine either being hapless and co-opted in its regulatory capture so that the, the virus, the agencies that give the stamp of approval to treatments, block out drugs that are very strongly linked to e efficacy mm -hmm. for early treatment of the virus, but they would have inhibited the, the sale of vaccines. Because the whole push of this thing is sales, 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 as Gates himself said in 2015 when he gave his famous TED talk, um, he, he said the whole world will have to be vaccinated and it will need at least three, three jabs. Well, how on earth did he know that? Well, he knew that because he's a master marketer. This is about the sale of vaccines. And I think we're naive if we step back and treat this, in fact, as a legitimate health emergency. I think history will show that we've been gulled and that this is not a legitimate health emergency at all. It's a created pandemic, and that people have been, for, often for good reason, um, uh, concerned and afraid, particularly when the, el the elderly are invoked as the reason for all this. Who wants to kill grandma? No one. So we behave with a respect for the elderly. But the fact of the matter is viruses 
are a routine part of human life and it's nature's way of culling certain people amongst them the very old and and if you have a year where you don't have a lot of people dying as we had in 2019 you're going to have more die when you get a virus coming through which is what happened in 2020 much of the 2020 20, 2021 increase can be accounted for by low deaths in 2019 a fact that again is ignored by the media now of course a lot of people would look at that and say well ian are you saying um that we shouldn't protect uh the elderly no i'm not saying that at all but there's lots of ways we protect grandma and always have if we've got mm -hmm. the sniff we don't go to see grandma exactly if we mm -hmm. unless grandma wants to risk it and grandma can say you know sweetie i'm going to come to you for christmas because it matters more for me to see my grandchildren the, and risk a cold than to stay home and be lonely mm. lord justice jonathan sumption of the uk gave a very important um interview right, right at the beginning or very early on in this where he he questioned the logic of removing autonomy from the elderly and he, and he said you know old, we've always allowed people to make their own healthcare risk assessments mm -hmm. and why are we removing that holus bolus from the elderly and saying that they can't choose to take a risk now and i think the reason is vaccine sales i think everything in this points towards vaccine sales every decision made points towards vaccine sales whether it's the suppression of hydrochloroquine or the suppression of ivermectin and there's lots of evidence that there's a very robust counter narrative uh, on the uh, uh, utility of ivermectin it works mm -hmm. but why is it why is it being suppressed why are we told there's studies happening, but we don't know the results. Oh, really? Well, how did we get a vaccine so fast and skip human testing, but we can't test ivermectin? Seriously? You expect yeah. us to believe that? That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. What it is, is a very well-organized, extremely well-funded, big pharma industry that has controlled uh, the media so totally. Why, why not? They own it. The same groups that run agriculture, big pharma, mining, transport they own the same groups that own all those sectors of culture and you can look this up just look up monopolies mm -hmm. they own big pharma and they own the media so if you want to make a lot of money through big pharma use your media control to suppress a narrative that's going to restrict sales to me that seems to make so much sense and in fact that's what i've seen over the past two years it's obvious you know it's interesting right now of course the uh, omicron is uh, working its way through um in canada and what is extraordinary for me as i'm looking at the numbers is the amount of the fully vaccinated now getting omicron it was always the unvaccinated or are the problem et cetera, et cetera. even diane francis uh in um, the financial post last week and i put a blog up on on uh, our website uh, addressing her her statement and argument that it, if you are unvaccinated you should pay for health care uh, you know your own health care which is incredible I mean uh, the demonization going on uh, of those who are unvaccinated to me is extraordinary one has to wonder what will happen now because the the narrative is breaking down as the Omicron is going rapidly, huge yeah. numbers. Um, I was listening to um, a Dr. Hirsch out of Yale uh, who has uh, said that um, uh, the arrival of Omicron is actually a very positive thing because it's actually nature's uh, vaccination in work. 
in in operation because it's now the virus is is so weak um and that you're actually if you can get the the omicron virus now uh the previous ones uh, particularly delta would not be so severe after you having omicron so it's it's just fascinating when when you hear that but 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 you don't see or hear that in uh the regular news right the mainstream media because it doesn't it doesn't suit the vaccine sales narrative mm. every single question in relation to covid from the very beginning if it suits the sales of vaccinations you're going to hear that if it thwarts it in any way you're not going to hear that mm. there's an act of suppression of alternative viewpoints it doesn't matter how eminent the physician doesn't matter how brilliant the group um, the Great Barrington Declaration was deep sixed by the mainstream media. It's got, I think, what eight hundred thousand signatures now from medic people related to medicine and leading people. We're in the midst of the most extraordinary war of lies that I've ever witnessed in my life. It's the most dangerous period of history in terms of truth being subordinated to financial interest. Uh, it's absolutely breathtaking what's gone on in the last while. When we're looking at 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 the issue of freedom. Um, how is it that in this particular, and, and to me, that this is a great case study uh, mm. for us to, to look at the whole concept of freedom. How is it that we can have one particular view that's being pushed, one ideological position and so forth, and yet no one else is allowed to uh, say anything that is going to be outside of that narrative? And what does this tell us? Some would say, well, this is human nature. We've seen this kind of thing before in the past. The problem I have right now is that we're living in a time of technological excess. I mean, just look at you and I right now. I'm in Canada. You're in Australia. We're able to have this discussion and we're going to share it with everyone in the world. It's extraordinary the the amount of ability that we have to be able to share. And yet government now is trying to cut back on the ability to share information. Our own government here in Canada, uh, Trudeau is uh, now going to deal with uh, censorship in the internet because um, I guess there must be some people uh, close to him that don't like certain things being said about them or something. Uh, you know, We're so advanced and yet we are so retro in... Uh, going back to some kind of draconian measures all the time well there's no there's nothing new in this critique um it was long ago recognized that any techne te the root of our word technique or technology or technician is the greek word techne which refers to skill or arts mm -hmm. it's how you do something it's the skill with which you do something that's it's techne but the greeks understood that you can only evaluate the how of things by putting the techne in relation to its telos, that's the Greek word for purpose or end. So you can only evaluate a means if you understand what its end is. Is this a good thing if I hold something up? You need to know what it's, what it's for before you can evaluate its goodness. Mm -hmm. Well, what started to happen some time ago, long time ago, is that all of our education in every discipline became technical and ceased to be teleological. So lawyers, for example, stopped being taught a robust conception of justice, but became adept at the techniques of law, whether it was tort law, contract right. law, criminal law, 
reading the tax code, interpreting a statute. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them to discuss in a serious way, competing theories of justice, they can't really. In fact, when you look at law school curriculum, I'm a law professor, as you said, the courses that teach subjects, contracts, tort law, which is to deal with negligence and so forth, criminal law, which is guilt and innocence, right and wrong. They tend to focus on the techniques of each subject area, not its purpose, mm. not its moral purpose in terms of keeping promises as the court of contract, the moral role of business. If you're doing commercial law, what is the moral purpose of business? Most business people can't tell you. They don't have any idea. Why? Because they've been taught at business schools that focus on the techniques of business, marketing, etc. But they're not taught the moral purpose of business. Whether it's nursing, education itself, medicine, law, um, any subject area, engineering, business, as I said, these things have become technical at the expense of telos. So we don't know what the telos or the purpose is for each discipline in itself. And then worse, we fractured the idea of a university where the variety was ordered towards the one, hence uni, mm -hmm. as George Grant, the Canadian philosopher, brilliantly put it, we now are in, we've been for a long time in multiversities where the disciplines really don't even talk to each other. So we have a split within each discipline of technique from purpose. And then we have the split between disciplines where you don't understand that philosophy and politics and theology need to be in conversation because they each have their own jurisdiction. Mm. You edited a book, um, Barry, a couple of years ago on the jurisdiction of law in relation to liberty and freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. And that idea of the jurisdiction of law, the idea that law has a necessary but not sufficient jurisdiction, it has an important sphere, but it's not, not everything. Right. You don't want law to create a friendship act that governs interpersonal relationships. You don't want it to create a family chores act. You could. You could have a family <laughs> chores act. Um, but no one would want a family chores act yet anyway. Why not? Well, because we understand that the home has to be free from the all-seeing eye of the state. But what's happened is, as law has become more and more technical and less and less for, focused on its purpose, which is justice and the common good, mm -hmm. it starts to be a question of mere powers. Yeah. And that's what we saw in Australia with these court decisions, which just are a search for the ministerial power. No one's asking, well, wait a minute, what's the result of all of these ministerial orders? You've got 40,000 people, I'm not making this up, 40,000 people were online watching that court application. Why? Because they had nothing better to do? No, because they were worried about mandatory vaccines um, in their particular areas of work. And they were being, no other word for it, coerced to take these jobs. It was straight out coercion. Mm. But did the, did the court want to look at the Nuremberg Code and its preclusion of coercion in relation to medical experiments like these so-called vaccines? No, court didn't want to touch that. All it wanted to look at was whether there was a ministerial power. And it didn't want to get under the term reasonable very much. Mm. It didn't want to look at reasonability in terms of natural law thinking. Um, Cicero, the Roman jurist, defined law as right reason in accordance with nature. Well, if you start to do that question 
analysis in relation to COVID shutdowns, in relation to the ma- forcing children to wear masks when they're not even at risk from this virus, so-called virus, you'd start to say, well, wait a minute, these aren't reasonable restrictions. This is a set of panicked restrictions. This doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And then you'll, you might want to do what the Spanish courts have done or the Portuguese courts have done, which doesn't get much coverage in the media because they ruled against the vaccine mandate. Similarly, in the American states where they've struck down mandatory um, vaccination regimes, those don't feature in the evening news in Australia. We hear nothing about them. Why? Well, I go back to the first thing. Everything you hear about furthers vaccines. What you don't hear about stymies vaccines. It's as simple as that. Follow the money. Mm -hmm. This whole thing can be explicable on the basis of whether it furthers a vaccine mandate or inhibits it. If it furthers it, you're going to hear about it. You're going to allow it. You're going to insist upon it. If it inhibits it, you're going to not allow that development. So if it's an alternative medical therapy like uh, ivermectin, well, you're going to to poo-poo that. You're going to say it's a what dewormer, as some idiot in the U.S. media called it. Why? Because they're getting their marching orders from the big pharma companies who are telling them what to do, how to suppress alternative therapies. One wonders whether or not we may see um, that this is a house of cards that may soon fall apart as time is going on because the virus is acting mm-hmm. like a virus would act, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, yeah, becoming less lethal. Becoming less lethal. I was listening to Jordan Peterson uh, just uh, the other day, speaking with actually a former prime minister of Australia, John Anderson. Yeah, he was deputy prime minister. He was never prime minister. Oh, okay. And Peterson was saying that uh, he suspects that as when this unfolds, as it uh, clues up, that we may be in a situation where the public esteem that has been held for such a long time for the medical community, uh, public health and so forth, will have suffered a serious blow uh, because of all of the confusion, because of the fact that now, as we're seeing with the Omicron, uh, it's becoming less lethal. And so therefore, why are you forcing us into all of these various mandates and all of the uh, things that go with it? My main uh, concern right now is how this affects us going forward as communities uh, dealing with a government or governments that have now acquired such huge amounts of power and deference by the courts. I mean, the courts, uh, I'm very disappointed to be quite frank with the lack of curiosity uh, in the judicial ben- bench. Uh, as to what proof you have uh, to declare this an emergency. It takes tremendous courage to stand up against a created um, psychosis. Two of the best short videos I've seen have come out of Canada, and they're produced by the Academy of Ideas. Mm. And they're called the, uh, they're on the rise and nature of mass psychosis. They also do two, a bunch of superb ones on Carl Jung and other people, but they do a really good one on Huxley and a really good one on Orwell. I've prescribed them to my students in my legal philosophy course. I think they're fabulous. And the two they did on mass psychosis, uh, where they look at historic examples of mass psychosis and how it leads to outrageous persecution, ought to give us real concerns if applied to the contemporary situation. 
they look at witchcraft. They look at the Jews in the Second War. Look, I've got friends who are Jewish who have sold their properties in the city here and moved to the country because they're so freaked out mm -hmm. by what they're seeing happen. They know from their family stories of what happened in the 30s in Germany. If you know history and you see what Austria has just done locking up the unvaccinated, you can see a repeat here of the slow step-by-step -step and increasing um, persecution of, in this case, the unvaccinated. Why is that happening? There's no e medical evidence that the unvaccinated pose a threat to the vaccinated. But that's that narrative of the threat. You mentioned a Canadian politician or a Canadian journalist, Francis, who mm -hmm. said something about it. But um, we here had a had a um, politician, she's gone now, thank God, who was the premier of this, this state, Gladys Berejiklian. And she famously referred to the pandemic of the unvaccinated, grossly irresponsible statement. But the kind of rhetoric that can start going, a kind of fear-based narrative of uh, a René Girard-type scapegoat mechanism. Mm. And you and I both know David Cayley, the fabulous Canadian journalist. Right who has his, uh, his website, davidkayley.com, just to give him a plug, Cayley, sure. C-A-Y-L-E-Y, all one word, davidkayley.com. David Cayley's work on René Girard, the French uh, literary scholar and scholar of myth, showing how scapegoats, which is what goes on with the Jews, what went on with witches, what happened with the other tribes in uh, Rwanda, or in the in the Serbia, Croatia, and so on. When you had that whole region go into this horrible genocide, what these what the scapegoat mechanism does is it identifies someone else as the other, and we view the um, movement against them as the means of solidifying our safety and our 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 security, and that mechanism is now started to to run in in Western cultures. And it's very, very dangerous. It can go very quickly into quite insane, um, irrational, actually, irrational movements. And I'm afraid to say that some of what you're describing with the judges and lawyers being unable to challenge this, the civil libertarians not being willing to speak out, is because like the citizens under the rise of the National Socialism in the 30s, people are afraid. Mm. They're afraid to speak out because they don't want to seem um, ignorant. Uh, they don't want to seem impolite. They don't want to seem like they're rocking the boat. And, it, and, and so it also, they, they stay quiet. Yeah. And it also uh, is um, related in no small part to the fact that um, if they were to speak out, they lose their, their position. They lose their job. They lose their livelihood. And uh, as a result, uh, they're not willing to speak out. I, I have a number of people who've talked to me just recently as well, who said that uh, in private conversation with um, one lady, for example, today I was speaking with, uh, she um, has a health issue, particularly her heart. Um, and uh, she had an appointment with a cardiologist, but she ended up getting fired before 
Um, she had, uh, she could meet with her cardiologist, which she was hoping he would help with, with her to get an exemption, but anyhow, but she did meet with him and he said to her that the medical profession does not allow him to give her an exemption. Uh, and he feels sorry for, her, but there's nothing he can do. And yet he agrees with her, but where does the role of him being a professional medical practitioner come into this it's like it's totally gone and and another person was sharing with me the fact that uh, as a nurse she can't say anything against the vaccines uh, because if she does uh, she will be disciplined by the college of nurses well if we get out of this unscathed if we get out of this unscathed we need serious legislative reform on whistleblowers in relation to emergencies. We need emergency legislation that puts the onus very strongly on the health ministers to prove what they're claiming about lethality and virulence of viruses. They can't simply do a Bill Gates, um, TED Talk 2015 style this is the scary thing coming. No, sorry, that is not going to work anymore. You have to prove um, on a balance of probabilities, if not even reasonable doubt, we might even want to crank it up to near um, to the criminal yeah. standard. Yeah, because the social consequences of these ridiculous declarations are so dire, as we've seen. I mean, yeah. we have absolutely eviscerated the economies of Western cultures. That it's going to take it's going to take our children the rest of their lives to sort this nonsense out. There should be Nuremberg trials coming out of this that put some of these health ministers on trial. There should be Nuremberg trials that put the big pharma um, executives on trial. There should be trials in future that put the politicians of the day on trial. Mm -hmm. I don't think that'll happen, but no. I do think it's what's what's just and what's so, uh, appropriate given what we've seen. We have seen lies, systematic co-option, co fear. We've seen associational capture of law societies, medical societies, virus um, um, agencies. We've seen international cooperation of organized evil mm -hmm. running the show. We've seen good doctors go quiet out of fear. I know good doctors, very senior ones who've uh, lost their jobs. I know people who've moved countries to try and find places where there's more freedom. This should not be happening in open and democratic societies, but yeah. by goodness me, it's happened in ours. And what is mass psychosis? It's when you accept things that are irrational as if they make sense because you're clinging to a narrative of security and safety and you cannot evaluate your first your presuppositions because it makes you afraid to do so right. now that's what we're in and that's why those academy of ideas programs are so valuable for everyone to watch mm -hmm. um, they were on youtube i hope they still are but they're must sees um, because they show what a mass uh, psychosis looks like, and we're into it. And so we have irrationality in friendship groups. I've had people approach me and say they can no longer have me to their home for dinner. Um, they had me at their home for dinner uh, a year and a half ago when right. this so-called pandemic was in full swing and there were no vaccinations. Right. Now they're all vaccinated. 95% supposedly of New South Wales are vaccinated. Now they don't want to have me for dinner. What's that about? 
Mm. That's irrationality from people mm-hmm. who are professionals. Mm-hmm. So, the, and we could all of us multiply these examples: families who won't allow people to come uh, for Christmas dinner, or mm-hmm. won't allow people to come over for birthday celebrations. Families that are split up because they can't travel internationally. Mm-hmm. We all know of cases like this. Right. This is a direct infringement of mobility rights guaranteed under the International Covenant and under the Canadian Charter, Section Six. Mm-hmm. It's these are direct interferences that should not be allowed in a free and democratic society unless there's very strong evidence for them. Well, what's the evidence? It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So this and, is uh, madness. And and even asking for the evidence is uh, somehow a sign of disloyalty, it seems. Yeah. And this is tearing families apart. Listen, let me give you an example of the absurdity of our age. This is mm-hmm. a really, this crystallizes it. Currently, we've had these Western countries, and Canada's been a great example of this, arguing for um, the right of an old person to exercise their autonomy. Right. They have such, we respect their autonomy to such an extent that we guarantee their right under the Canadian Charter. Thank you, Lynn, Justice Lynn Smith. Yeah. Thank you, Supreme Court of Canada and Carter. We so respect their autonomy that they can kill themselves. Yeah, well, and not only kill themselves, but force others to kill them. Right. So they have that right because we respect them so Mm -hmm. much. Their autonomy matters for us to us as Canadians so much. Mm -hmm. And it's debated in Australia too. In all these Western countries, the autonomy of the old is so important to us, you can kill yourself. But do we respect that autonomy to take a risk to see your grandchildren? Just a risk that isn't even that great? Mm -hmm. No, can't do that. Why? Think about that. Why can I kill myself under euthanasia, but I can't take any risk even to get the sniffles with these various viruses? Mm -hmm. The answer is simple. Vaccine sales, booster sales, PCR test sales. PCR tests don't even work, but we're spending billions on them. Who owns shares in the PCR companies? Well, you can do that research yourself, but you'll find it's the same players who have shares in the big pharma companies. This is all a vast marketing exercise, and we've all been sucked into it, and we've now got to figure out a way to get out of it. And I think it's going to be citizen initiatives to just say no more, not on my watch. I'm not going along with this and refuse to comply. That's what the free citizen is going to have to do in future. Refuse to comply. And of course, that refusing to comply is going to come at a great personal cost. Yes, it will. But that's, you know what? Courage and justice, um, wisdom and moderation are the four cardinal virtues. And they're perfected, says the Western tradition, by faith, hope, and love. Mm -hmm. And if we act with faith and with hope and love, that will perfect justice and the common good nothing else will Mm -hmm. so we are going to have to resist these unjust and evil movements in culture in every area including the law and we're just going to have to put ourselves on the line if enough of us do it we'll stop it yeah but remember every great civil liberties movement has had to come at great cost to some people and Mm -hmm. i think it's going to come for many of us soon yeah I, i i think you're absolutely right it's fascinating to see how very few people are willing to stand uh, at this moment. Um, there are some, and I I have interviewed a number of them. And, um, you know, I have uh, tremendous respect. I had uh, two students, university students. One has one course left to complete this next semester. Uh, 
in astrophysics, um, designing aircraft and all the rest of it. Last year, it was taught online because of the COVID uh, thing. This year, it's going to be taught uh, in person. And uh, he's being denied uh, being able to attend it because he's not vaccinated. Uh, so he's going to lose out on his four-year degree. Uh, his wife, uh, doing a biomedical degree, uh, has one semester left. She's being uh, unenrolled. Um, and it's incredible to see uh, these young people who are willing to make those kinds of commitments. It's um, yeah. and, and I've been, as you have, uh, been a, a student of people of conscience over the years, and you've seen them uh, in World War II, for example, refusing to bear arms, going totally against the, um, um, you know, what the majority were doing, put in work camps across Canada, um, you know, had their farms, losing their farms because they're unable to uh, look after the farm and all. I mean, tremendous amount of stress. Very few of those people will make those kinds of decisions. But uh, even with the few, uh, people eventually, at least in history, they've eventually looked at it and said, oh, hold on now, was this reasonable for us to expect these people to make these kinds of um, yeah. uh, decisions? And, and I think that's probably what it's going to be, trying to tell the story, trying to get people to recognize the the danger, so-called, is not near as bad as what has been um, propagated and um, individuals have been forced to pay horrendous prices as a result. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance, it's mm. been said. Right. And, and the price of freedom has been paid with blood by generations before us and not so long before us. Mm -hmm. And we are throwing away that gift that they gave us with their lives mm. for the sake of being farmed by big pharma. Um, and it's oligarchic friends who run the show. You know, the companies that own the bulk of the, uh, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, the big powers, some of them privately held, that control monopoly interests in most sectors of our world. These, are, these errors took a long time to come to light, the level of control they have. Our governments look to be bringing in a social credit type approach, digital currencies of the sort that right. the Chinese um, we could only, uh, you know, have already em embarked on accepting, but in some respects could only dream of that level of control. We are moving into authoritarianism so fast and people are so afraid to challenge it that uh, I'm afraid for the future. I have children. I have grandchildren. I do know I, I, in the past two years, I've seen the collapse of my confidence in human beings. Um, and I've seen a lot of people resemble sheep. They're afraid. They're easily misled, like sheep. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's going to take courageous people to stand up. But I'll tell you what: there will be a great reset. But it's going to come from the from us, not from the top. Right. It's going to come from us linking arms, having solidarity and friendship and love, and courage and compassion, and saying to hell with the organizing mechanisms from the top. To hell with them. We will not comply with their systems of injustice. We will band together to support one another. We will have a great reset, but it's going to be from the bottom up. It's going to be community organized, locally supported. It's going to be, if they shut our universities, we'll start our own. If they shut our, our medical clinics, we'll start our own. If they shut our schools, we'll start our own. 
If they shut our clinics, we'll start our own. We have to now have citizen-led initiatives to go our own way because the governments, the po political order and the legal order have betrayed the West wow. and other countries as well. That's huge. I mean, that that is our entire order of things. Uh, the ability to be able to to uh, come to some form of resolution uh, is being challenged. And as you have just articulated, we are in the most serious time since World War II by far. Yeah, we are now into the world of technocracy and control that great philosophers have talked about for a very long time leading to, um, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in 1943 called The Abolition of Man. Right. And that title was brilliantly prescient. You know, he saw that where these technological movements were going to go. It's been foretold in the many of the world's greatest religious traditions that a time of testing will come mm -hmm. uh, like, like this. It's been uh, written about by the philosophers who've talked about authoritarianism and totalitarianism coming through technology. I can think of so many people that one has read, you know, uh, I mentioned Lewis a minute ago, the abolition of man, but you mm -hmm. get it so clearly in Huxley with brave new world and Orwell with oh, 1984. No. Yes. Uh, you get it with RH Benson's Lord of the world. You get it in so many authors who wrote these dystopian novels, Michael O'Brien, the Canadian writing father, Elijah. I mean, just much more recently, these and uh, Walker Percy writing the Thanatos syndrome, the American novelist. So many people have foretold how that technology separated from justice and from ethics will go the wrong way. Mm -hmm. In one year, you had um, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, um, Richard Dawkins, and um, uh, Stephen Hawking, all saying, these were leaders in the technology and physics of the time, all of them in science, all of them said, you need a moratorium on artificial intelligence, right? because it's going to take us into a world of the perfection of the anti-human. Mm -hmm. And we have not listened to them. We're still going on our way. It's as if we have reinvented the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right. we're busy eating the fruit of it right now. Right. And the, the consequence of that is going to be untold catastrophe for human beings. And those of us who resist that narrative, who understand that there has to be limits to technology, um, and are looking for new ways of living together, we have to start taking hard decisions about technology, which means, I think, for some of us, throwing away um, our smart devices. Um, I actually think we need to start consciously disconnecting from this world that is the means of surveillance. Mm. Um, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to start getting rid of devices that are monitoring me, refuse to do them. I've already refused to connect to some of the services I'm supposed to be connected to for the health um, scamdemic. Mm -hmm. I'm not connecting to them and I'm urging people not to connect to them or disconnect from them. Uh, in future, we're going to have to take real measures to avoid um, signing up, avoid getting on the apps, avoid uh, surveillance. We have to take measures to do that. First of all, as evidence of what you're saying, the Canadian government just um, admitted recently that they have been surveilling 33 million smartphones 
during this uh, pandemic. There are 36 million people in Canada. So the amount of surveillance and what in the world is the government doing with all of that data? Uh, okay, they, they're doing it on the basis of, of health, making sure that the people who are in lockdowns are not following. But you can rest assured they're using that for other nefarious uh, ideas perhaps who uh, you, you know so that it's too easy now it's too easy now to keep track of us all and uh but how in the world are we going to live without our phones right i mean that's the the other thing i mean you and i were able to connect just uh a couple of hours ago to set up this call uh because of such things that are in fact um these apps are keeping track of us well, it may be, Barry, that in the future, we'll realize what uh, the cost of this convenience was. Mm. And, and the cost of this convenience might well take us back to your very first question about freedoms. Freedom. And the cost of this convenience might very well be human liberty itself. Well, which is um, obviously what's happening in China right now. And in, and in the West, as I say, the, the, the gap between communist societies and ours has shrunk ever more rapidly and ever more markedly. It's now profound how people are taking in their stride uh, this ubiquitous monitoring of our, where we sign in and check in and so on. And it's sticky technology. Once we have the QR codes in place, I mean, the police here have said they, they want them after this current health crisis is gone because it makes their lives easier as policemen. The, in, in Queensland, the state north of me here in New South Wales, uh, capital city of Brisbane, the uh, the government there issued a statement that their new normal will include QR codes. Wow. Well, we see we have to resist this. This is where the civil libertarians have to find yep. some kind of memory and say, no, we're not going to do this. And citizens have to just say, no, we're not going to do it. And, and they may have to fake it, fake your QR codes. There has to be civil disobedience against injustice. And that was done uh, in, in the past. There's many examples of this. Gandhi did it. Nelson Mandela did it. Um, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King did it. Mm -hmm. Canadians of various sorts have done it. And sometimes it's a, it's a bloody business being a dissident. But we have to become dissidents in order to remain free. I'm convinced of that. And uh, the cost of our, our freedom is going to have to be the maintenance of our integrity. Mm. And uh, and that requires us to find our courage points and stick with them and mm. support one another. Don't mm. give in to the scaredy cat, fear-mongering globalists uh, who are just wanting con total control. Say to hell with you. We're not giving you this control. You can butt out. There's the door. Get stuffed. And if that means I have to lose my job because I'm not going to go along with an unjust edict, so what? It's just a job. Get another mm. job. Find your find yourself, find this as a moment of opportunity. I've lost jobs in the past, and it always led to something better. Mm. It's it's an insecure time in our lives, but when it happens, it's often the way that a better door is open. Um, because we're creatures of security and we'll stay in a secure setting long after its best by date. Right. Um, and sometimes it takes us as as Lewis and Sheldon Van Auken famously called the book years ago, it's sometimes a severe mercy is us losing a job for the sake of something better that'll come out of it. Mm -hmm. And maybe what'll come out of this collapse of this previous set of orders is a new 
a new understanding of the importance of community and friendship. Mm. And if that comes out of this, that's not a bad thing at all. No, that's you know, true. A high time, I'd say. And if it co- what comes out of this is a separation of the sheep from the goats, a separation of those with courage with, from those who are just sheep, uh, and the splitting of, of certain church groups or even entire churches, so be it. Um, we're starting to, to see the nature of some of those people around us. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, it's pretty pathetic how yeah. weak they are. They're weak people, easily scared, afraid, and they are not to be emulated. They're to be resisted. I was speaking with a gentleman who's 90 years old. His Mm -hmm. wife is 91. She's in a home. He moved Mm -hmm. so that he could be right next to the home so he could visit her. But because he's not vaccinated as of December 20, he can no longer see his wife of 60 some years of marriage. He told me both he and his wife are from Belgium. They grew up in the war. And he said, I never thought that Canada was going to be like this. He said, when I came here, I saw Canada as a free country. And now he said, um, I don't, he said the same attitudes that we had when I was growing up in World War II, where he said, I couldn't even, uh, I, I was careful who I was talking to because I didn't know if they were supporting the Nazis or not. And now he said, um, I have the same fear about whether or not these are people who are going to denigrate me as an unvaccinated person uh, or not. And and so he said uh, the similarity here, he, he just blown away by it. And uh, speaking with his daughter after that interview, uh, she told me that uh, for the first time in her life, she's seen her father now uh, being uh, depressed, uh, obviously, because he's can no longer see his wife. Yeah, uh, we see this is this is just sheer wickedness. I mean, what is the wife in, in hospital for? She's got Alzheimer's. I mean, this is insanity. This is what I saw locally with a guy, a friend from church, Jeff, an old guy who had uh dementia and he was in palliative care he was being prepared he was preparing to die right Mm -hmm. they wouldn't let him have visitors now that is a mental illness on the part of the health authorities that is a that is a psychotic breakdown of an entire medical system you have to realize and i think people people may need the need the courage to, to see to call this out we are in the midst of a psychosis of culture in which insane things are being done under the rubric of their old names, healthcare, mm. law, um, politics. It isn't proper healthcare, it isn't proper law, and it isn't proper politics. It's psychotic healthcare, psychotic law, and psychotic politics. Mm. And that's, it is mad. So if people feel like it's mad, they're absolutely right. It is mad. Mm. So what we have to do is laugh at it. So you see, the key, one of the things Solzhenitsyn, Alexander mm. Solzhenitsyn, one of the things he understood and, the, and one of the things Vaclav Havel understood, and Havel in the Czech Republic, um, when it was Czechoslovakia, what he understood was that you have to laugh. Luke, Martin Luther said that you, the one thing the devil cannot abide is mockery. Mm. Well, we need, uh, we need to re, have a resurgence of satire. Mm-hmm. And we have to make fun of these idiots. They don't give two hoots about justice. They don't give two hoots about real people. They're just left. They're, they're kind of socialist globalists. Now, when people are like that, we need to call them that. Do you know that Crocodile, the great Russian paper, 
was the satire magazine. It outsold Pravda, the Russian word for truth. Pravda mm. was the official organ of the state, but everybody read Crocodile or Crocodile. But we have to do that. Right. We have to come up with ways of laughing at our leaders and absurd things. Laugh and move on. Laugh and move on. The only way we're going to maintain joy and hope in our communities is to laugh at the insanity that's around us. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wore a mask over my eyes for a while. It didn't cover my nose and mouth just to show the absurdity of mask wearing. There's a, a couplet beloved of uh, C.S. Lewis by Dunbar, the Scottish poet that Lewis loved this and he writes about it several places and it, it goes like this man please thy maker and be merry and give not for this world a cherry mm. and what the problem is we've all become kind of vitalists and vitalism was the old heresy that said that life was the most important thing mm -hmm. life isn't the most important thing not at all mm -hmm. life is sure it's important but it isn't everything What's more important is the, how we live together with integrity and joy, and, and, and that's what matters. Mm. You know, to love God, love others, that's what matters. Mm. This nonsense that we're in at the moment is leading us to think that a sniffle, if it's well-marketed, can make people into billionaires and everyone else into slaves. Yeah. Well, to them, I have a message. Get stuffed. Take your little um, snake oil uh, sales pitch somewhere else. I'm not interested. And neither is anyone I respect. And if you've fallen into the torpor and the great sleep of this current phase of culture, more fool you. But you're not going to get me and you're not going to get my the people I respect. Because we're standing strong. We're standing firm. We're telling you to get stuffed. And we mean it. Get stuffed. You're not getting me. If you drag me into a van, you may have to do that. But you're not getting me any other way. Mm. I refuse. Mm. We have to become refusenicks. That was the great term the Russian, under the Russian rule. We have to become refusenicks. Well, I'm not complying. And, and a lot of sensible people aren't complying in lots of areas of culture. And the more of us, the better. And we need to become evangelists for non-compliance. Well, I'm going to uh, end it right there. You have uh, thrown down the gauntlet. And uh, <laughs> Ian, I, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. It's always a pleasure just to hear you uh, be able to um, articulate so well are the time in which we live, you know, it's um, in the Bible that talks about Issachar, the, uh, the the people of Issachar, they understood the times and knew what Israel must do. And uh, that's how, how I see the message you've shared with us here today, uh, for us to understand our time and uh and what we must do and that is be refuse next uh, it's it's going to be a very difficult journey for many yeah. many people but it's one that we're going to have to have to take it already has been difficult barry look at yes. we, we, you and i and both know our stories we yeah. lots for many many people out there it's much more difficult than it's been for us and we can just honor them but the thing what, what we need to do is stand close together that's the yeah. thing the yeah. future requires us to have that solidarity Okay, well, Ian, uh, Professor of Law, uh, Dr. Ian Benson, Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney, Australia, I want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing with us and for our viewers. Um, we will be back next time with another Freedom Feature Podcast. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time 
effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians at firstfreedoms.ca.